Okay, so this evening I'd like to continue exploring our theme of finding the heart of freedom. Starting with the reminder that freedom in this context, I mean freeing ourselves from painful, afflictive, self-referential mind state and establishing ourselves in beneficial, skillful and altruistic mind state on deeper and deeper and deeper levels. So before we go any further, just to check, how are you doing with that? In the form, not verbally, of just thumbs up, thumbs down, or mm -mm. <laughs> mix. Could you just say it again? What, uh, the, I didn't quite follow the question. The question is, how are you doing with this project of finding the heart of freedom right now, in this moment? So sense of, yes, it's going well, no, it's not going well, a bit of a mix. Yeah, so a range, which is pretty much what I anticipated, and it will change. So for some of you, there were some definite thumbs down, and although we might know intellectually at least that this is completely normal and to be expected, there'll be ups and downs and challenges, still I think there is something in most of us that feels confronted when we do experience perhaps as more difficult or challenging phases of the path. And even after years of practice, there's still often that tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So with that underlying belief, the tendency is when things are unpleasant or difficult, to believe that we've done something wrong and then we put a lot of effort in trying to work out what that was and how we can get back to that pleasant experience that we had yesterday or on the last retreat or a decade ago. <laughs> so tonight I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we expect to encounter on a meditation retreat. Those different afflictive mental states that can really pull us off balance in various ways until we learn how to recognize them and how to navigate them skillfully. So in my talk the other night on Vedana or feeling tone, I started to explore how those three feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral act as sparks that can ignite a whole chain reaction that when there's no mindfulness, pulls the mind into those three basic afflictive energies known as greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion, these are pretty heavy terms. And so it's possible to think, well, they don't really apply to me. I don't really experience hatred. But each of these terms refers to a whole spectrum of intensity from the most extreme all the way through to the most subtle. So for example, greed. It includes the craving of addiction and then all the way through to the other end just that little flicker of wanting another piece of chocolate. Hatred 
includes the most murderous rage and loathing and terror all the way through to just that little pulse of irritation when someone stands too close to you in the lunch line. And delusion includes the most pathological disconnection from reality all the way through to just that turning away of the attention from something we'd rather not see. So instead of greed, hatred and delusion, the English Dharma teacher Martin Aylward uses slightly different language to point to the energy of these three afflictive states. So he refers to them as the three C's of compulsion, contraction and confusion. So compulsion is the greed energy of moving towards something and contraction is the aversion energy of moving away or resisting something. And confusion is it can show up as a sort of a non-movement, a kind of stuckness, or an agitated spinning around without getting anywhere. So those three basic motivations or movements are what keep us caught in dukkha, in suffering. And on one level it's pretty obvious that when we're caught in any of these three states, it's going to have a serious impact on our lives and on our meditation practice. So the Buddha drew our attention in terms of meditation practice to five particular flavors of these root energies. And I sometimes joke that these flavors are not vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. (laughs) (laughs) So some of you know where this is going. Five hindrances. What are the flavors of the five hindrances? Anybody remember what they are? Sense your pleasure. Yes, thank you. The first one is sense pleasure, desire for sense pleasure. And the second one? Sloth and torpor. That's the third one. There's one in between. Anger or aversion. Yeah, ill will or aversion. So desire for sense pleasure, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, then... Yeah. That's the fifth one. Worry and anxiety is the fourth one. And then doubt. Yeah. So those are the five. And even if you don't recognize them by name at this point, if this list is new to you, I'm guessing that you will recognize at least a couple of them from direct experience, maybe even right now. So... just to say what these five are and before we go into them in a little bit more detail the Buddha is reported to have said that these five hindrances overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment and he goes on to say that when we're weak in discernment we can't understand what's for our own benefit what's for the benefit of others and what's for the benefit of both So to me that was interesting because the hindrances is not just impacting us. There's an ethical dimension to it. The more we can clean up our own act, so to speak, the less damage we're going to do out there too. So how do we actually help to free ourselves from these? 
in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness, there's a refrain or a passage that's repeated for each of these hindrances in turn. And in essence, we ask to know if a hindrance is present or not, and then to know what caused it to come up in the first place, when it has arisen, how to help it release, and then how to prevent it from coming up again in the future. So quite a lot in that. And it's very explicit, as I was saying earlier, that it's not enough just to be mindful of the hindrances. We need to bring in wisdom to know what causes them, how to release them, how to prevent them from re-arising, which is definitely not easy. But like every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, this is a progressive training. And the first step in that training is to learn to recognize how they show up for us individually, because each of us will experience them in slightly different ways. They'll have their own unique signature patterns. But with practice, we can learn to recognize them more and more quickly before they get too much of a hold on us. So we also need to be aware when we are working with these hindrances, again because of language, the language can sound quite heavy. Even the word hindrance can trigger a sense that these are wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening, and we need to get rid of them as quickly as possible. So as an antidote to that, I like to bring in uh, a teaching by the English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, which for me really transformed my relationship to the hindrances. So he suggests that instead of thinking of them as hindrances, we think of them as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. Does that change your relationship to them in any way? (laughs) Slightly different flavor. And so when I share this in talks, sometimes people come into their individual meetings with me and they say, I have been manifesting so much humanity today. (laughs) And it's good that we can laugh at that, because really that's an important shift in our relationship, to not take them personally. Because taking them personally only makes them stronger. Instead, we try to relate to them with the same kind curiosity that we bring to everything else, the physical sensations in the body, the thoughts and the emotions and the sounds. We know them as simply phenomena that are arising due to conditions, that will pass away due to conditions. They're not me. They're not mine. They're not who I am. So in a similar way, instead of thinking of them as issues that are blocking us, that training slogan, if it's in the way, it is the way. Instead of thinking, if only I wasn't getting caught up in fantasies all the time, then I'd be able to meditate. Or if only I could stop obsessing about what I'm going to say in my next individual meeting, then I'd be able to meditate. 
or if only that other meditator would stop doing that very annoying thing that they're always doing, then I'd be able to meditate. So instead of postponing our meditation until all the hindrances magically evaporate, bring them into the awareness, see them as hindrances, meet them with kindness, and just that can help them to release. So just a little bit more about what these five are. The first one, the desire for sense pleasure, rooted in the energy of greed. That movement towards pleasant experiences, to cling to them, to hold on to them, to prolong them, to enhance them. And while this might bring short-term happiness, because of the truth that everything changes, in the long run, it keeps us caught in disappointment. And this uh, desire for sense pleasure often gets us into trouble ethically, because when we're blinded by greed for something, we tend to stop seeing other people as fellow human beings. We might relate to them as objects of gratification or objects that are getting in the way of our happiness. And that's, you know, on the more extreme end. But even on retreat, we can see different manifestations of this desire for sense pleasure, sometimes showing up as an obsession with comfort. So I've seen that in myself. Possibly you've noticed it too, how after a day or two of being on retreat, we work out all kinds of habits and strategies and techniques for keeping ourselves as comfortable and cozy as possible. And once we've got these strategies in place, we can get surprisingly reactive if they get threatened in any way. Has anybody noticed that? My walking track, my favorite seat in the dining room, my best cushion that somebody stole, etc. And so on one level, yes, it's natural to want comfort. And given the choice, part of us would probably stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. But the downside of that is our comfort zones get smaller and smaller. And we don't strengthen that capacity to meet life's inevitable difficulties. So that's one reason I invited us the other night just to write down our aspirations for this retreat so that we could get some clarity, a sense of connection to our deeper intentions for the practice. And so here they are now as a visual reminder of that intention or aspiration that we can keep on orienting to, to help us strengthen that intention to move beyond just getting more comfortable. So in the classical discourses, the, there's a metaphor that's often used for the mind in meditation, and that's the metaphor of still, clear water. And this image of water evokes clarity and tranquility. Because when the mind is still and clear, when sati and samadhi are strong, that's when deep insight can arise. 
So when the Buddha was talking about the hindrances, he used the metaphor of a bowl of water to represent the mind. And that's partly because in India at that time, um, bowls of water were used by ordinary people as mirrors in the way that glass mirrors were not very common then. So ordinary householders would have a bowl of water that they could check their reflection in. And obviously, if the water in the bowl is not completely still and clear, we're not going to get an accurate, clear image. So the Buddha took this analogy to describe how each of the hindrances affect the mind. And he compared the first hindrance, the desire for sense pleasure, with a bowl of water that's had all kinds of colored dyes mixed into it. So red and blue and yellow and green dyes. And we get enchanted by the pretty colors, but we can't see clearly. So just a caveat that I, I think I mentioned this the other night, when we're talking about pleasantness and sense desire as a hindrance, Sometimes people misunderstand this as meaning we should never enjoy anything. Or we should be trying to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. So again, it's not the sense pleasure itself that's the issue. It's our relationship to it. If we're getting attached to it, caught up in it, and so on. And sometimes people wonder, well, what's so bad about just getting my desires met when I can? And again, there is a short-term happiness from it. But it keeps us dependent on conditions out there for our happiness. And because things change, the happiness of the sense pleasure wears off. How many bowls of ice cream can we eat before we start to feel sick? And even the most fabulous holiday, it comes to an end. And we have that sort of depressed going home feeling. So every sense pleasure has a drawback. And as I said the other night, the compensation for giving up the sense pleasures is the mental happiness that comes as a result. When the mind is not agitated by sense desire, there can be profound ease, <coughs> calm, peace, contentment that's way beyond any physical sense pleasure that could gratify us. So, the antidote to the sense pleasures, the first one is, as you can probably guess, mindfulness. So really bringing awareness to what happens when we're caught in sense pleasure. And often there's some kind of energetic leaning forward in the body, a feeling of being drawn or pulled towards what you want perhaps heat and energy and excited racing thoughts in the mind, sometimes spinning out into fantasies of all kinds. And if we can recognize, oh, that is sense desire, just in that recognition is a moment of freedom. And this is because the part of the mind that's doing the recognizing is different from the part of the mind that's caught in it. This is one of the neuroscience understandings of the benefit of mindfulness. So the more we can keep perforating that hindrance cloud, 
with these moments of recognition, the quicker it can break up and disperse. So mindfulness is an antidote. The second antidote is renunciation, the simplicity that I talked about that first night. So can we consciously practice accepting the conditions as we find them, rather than trying to change them to suit our individual preferences? And this might go against the basic principles of consumerism, but more choice doesn't actually lead to greater happiness. In fact, there is a lot of research studies that shows the opposite is true. And certainly from spending time in places like Thailand on retreat where conditions are extremely simple, I found that stillness and contentment is often more available there because there isn't the same choice and the mind can just go quiet. So we can experiment with just letting go of trying to get what we want and accept fully this is how it is. And then notice the effect on the mind. Usually there will be more ease and calm and peace. At times when mindfulness is weak though, we get to experience that reciprocal relationship between sense desire and ill will or aversion. So if we don't recognize sense desire for what it is, or if for some reason we're not able to fulfill it, then we usually flip into ill will. And because ill will feels painful, we often unconsciously then chase after something pleasant to get rid of that unpleasantness. So there's this kind of bouncing back and forward between ill will and sense desire. So the Pali word is via para, and according to Gil Fronstel, it means the desire to strike out at something. So it's motivated by hostility, wanting to attack, push away, turn away. So it includes all forms of aversion, such as mental resistance, and also fear in its various forms, from minor anxiety all the way through to terror. So a pretty broad scope of unpleasant emotions are included in ill will, dislike and aversion, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, fear, panic, terror. I have another whole three lines of words here, but I think you get the picture. (laughs) So in the classical analogy of the bowl of water, The metaphor for the hindrance of ill will is a bowl of water that's been heated on a fire and is bubbling up and boiling over. And obviously when the water is boiling like that, we can't see clearly. It doesn't perform its function as a mirror. We can also get a sense of how painful this state is. So in English we talk about seething with anger, that sense of the boilingness, the painfulness of it. And also its potential danger to harm ourselves and to harm others. And on retreat, this particular hindrance can sometimes show up as reactivity to the retreat container itself. Perhaps irritation about having to follow the schedule or fear of not following the schedule. 
Sometimes there's resentment about doing our mindfulness in action tasks or irritation with our fellow meditators. There are myriad ways that we can get caught in aversion. So I'm not going to try and describe all of them because that itself could bring up more aversion. But just to say one very common form of this on retreat is judging mind. Anybody experience that? Okay, so anybody not experience that? That'd be easier. <laughs> yeah, I'm not seeing anything, so good. So you're familiar with the judging mind. We judge ourselves. We judge our practice. We judge each other. We judge the teachers. We judge anything that moves. And it can be shocking sometimes to see just how much mental energy goes into this judging mind. And then we get caught in the judging of the judging. (laughs) So the tendency is to try to not take it personally. As you just saw, it's pretty much universal. So another of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, also spent quite a bit of time working with judging mind. And one of the techniques he used when he started to see it on retreat was to start counting his judging thoughts. So from the moment he woke up, oh, okay, judgment number one. Then he'd be walking to the room for breakfast. Oh, there's another one, judging number two, three, four. And by the time he got to 450, he just gave up. So to just see at some point, we have to laugh. It's just the mind doing their thing, doing its thing. So we want to try to stay out of the terrain of judgment, of resistance, because that only makes it hang around longer. So an an antidote to aversion, ill will, is metta, usually often translated as goodwill. So when we find ourselves caught in some kind of aversion, we can experiment with consciously turning the mind towards goodwill. And this isn't always easy, but even just on an intellectual level, even if it feels dry and mechanical and meaningless, it can still, on some level, help to shift that unfortunate state. So I sometimes have used the example when I was on retreat, my first three-month retreat, there was some point in there where I just got completely caught up in pretty seriously intense aversion. And it felt like my mind was just wrapped in barbed wire and any kind of mental activity was just excruciating. And I was so caught up in it, and I thought, okay, well, I'll go for a walk around this three-mile loop in the countryside, and I will do matter practice. And I would open my mouth to say the phrases, and it was like they just wouldn't even form. It was like there was just ash in my mouth, and I'd say, (laughs) And I couldn't get the phrases to come out. And so eventually I thought, okay, well, just don't do it for myself or someone else. Just do it for all beings. 
And literally all I could say was all beings, all beings, all beings. I couldn't even say may all beings be well and happy. So I was stamping around down these tracks just trying to find these words and I could get out all beings, all beings. But amazingly, even that, maybe about two miles into the three-mile loop, it just started to shift. So no matter how skeptical you are, give it a try. can work. So metta, goodwill, has the potential antidote to ill will. And then the last of the three hindrances are rooted in ignorance, delusion. So these last three are various forms of ignorance, and they include sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. So sloth and torpor, pretty sure everyone has experienced that, if not now, but probably on the first day of the retreat. And this are old-fashioned English words for sleepiness, sluggishness in the body, and sort of dullness and stiffness in the mind, or inertia. And so again, there's a whole spectrum of intensity here, from the total unconsciousness of sleep, right through to just that slight feeling of drowsiness or spaciness. So in terms of the bowl of water metaphor, the image for this one is a bowl of water that is grown over with slimy moss, and water plants so the water is stagnant green choked with weeds so this sloth this hindrances sloth and torpor can also show up as a kind of apathy or a habitual tendency to retreat in the face of difficulties so it might be that urge just to go back to bed for a while when something unpleasant is going on. Or that urge to just check out or numb out or disconnect from anything that's challenging. And sometimes we can rationalize this as a form of self-compassion. Yeah, I've worked hard today. Wouldn't hurt just to take a little nap right now and then three hours later... So notice, if you do that, what happens when you do take a nap. Is there more clarity in the mind afterwards or not? Or is the nap becoming a default strategy whenever anything uncomfortable starts to come? And if it is, then you might consider other options, perhaps going for a walk to refresh the energy. So in terms of the antidotes to sloth and torpor, when we're meditating, first one is to open the eyes, because that sleepiness, when the eyes are open, that little bit more brightness can brighten the mind too. And if that doesn't work, we can change posture to standing. So that's always a good option, because the standing posture usually brings up more energy, even if it's just the energy to try not to fall over. And the other day I mentioned how some of my first teachers uh, had that suggestion that instead of bobbing and bobbing and bobbing to stay down and notice how it feels when we're in that slumped over posture and then slowly and mindfully come back upright. 
And I tried that a few times and found that it was actually surprisingly effective. So you might give that a go. So there is a reciprocal energy relationship between sloth and torpor and the next one, restlessness and worry. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance in the form of not enough energy. And then restlessness and worry is the revved up too much energy. And often we do swing between that feeling sluggish and then pushing ourselves to come upright and then getting anxious and agitated and then that's tiring so we sink back down into sloth and torpor. And so restlessness and worry has a bodily component and a mental component and they condition each other. So in the body sometimes it's like twitchy, jumpy, energetic pulses and the body wanting to move every few minutes. But as I think you all experience, the more we move, the more we want to move. And suddenly we find like we can't sit still for one more minute. And then there are other times when the mind gets totally caught in worry and rumination, wondering and proliferating. The minutes just seem to be dragging by. And again, there's a whole spectrum of intensity here. From just the most intense physical jumpiness and mental agitation through to just little flickerings of anxiety. And the traditional metaphor for restlessness and worry is a bowl of water that has become ruffled by the wind and the waters trembled, eddied and rippled. So again, obviously we can't see clearly. And on retreat it sometimes shows up as obsessive thinking, the mind that just keeps looping and looping and looping of the same thought. And when we do get stuck in a pattern like that, we might understand that it's probably a symptom of some kind of emotion that we haven't worked with yet. So one strategy is to try bringing the energy down into the body, perhaps to the heart center, and to feel if there is some kind of emotion that's driving that looping. And then if necessary, we can bring in self-compassion. So finally, the last hindrance of skeptical doubt. And of all of them, this one might be the hardest to work with because it shows up in quite sneaky forms. So it can show up as doubt about the teachings, doubt about the teachers, doubt about our own capacity to do the practice. And it can show up as endless questioning and second-guessing and uncertainty, confusion, undermining, and so on. And the traditional metaphor, the bowl of water, is a bowl of water that is agitated, stirred up, muddied, and put in a dark place. (laughs) So, pretty intense. It's not, it gives you a sense of the doubly destructive aspect of doubt. Not only is the water of the mind clouded by mud, it's in a dark place, so we can't even recognize the presence of the mud. So this hindrance is usually referred to as skeptical doubt rather than just doubt to try to distinguish it from a more skillful form of questioning 
of inquiry or investigation. And the difference between them is that with inquiry, with investigation, our questioning leads to more clarity, more understanding. Whereas with sceptical doubt, the questions often just go around and around and lead to what's sometimes called paralysis by analysis. (laughs) And on retreat, it sometimes shows up getting caught in wondering, well, should I do mindfulness of breathing now or metta? Should I be trying to be more concentrated or more relaxed? Would it be better to do walking now or yoga? And we end up not doing anything at all because we just can't decide what's best. And there's one pretty simple remedy for this problem. On one level, it doesn't matter what specific practice you choose to do. If you're cultivating mindfulness or any of the Brahma-Vihara, it's always time well spent. So that's probably enough just to give you the general flavor of what these five hindrances are. And I'm guessing at least some of them will have been familiar to all of you. And even for people who've been meditating for a long time, they still show up. Perhaps, hopefully not quite as intensely, and they don't stick around for quite as long. So I want to come back to the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta and to highlight that instruction to know if the hindrance is absent. Because this is a key instruction that most of us tend to overlook. Again, because of our inbuilt negativity bias, we tend to be much more alert for problems and to spend a lot more focus, time focused on what's unpleasant than what's going well. And in my own practice, there's been times when I recognize that some part of my mind actually enjoys struggling with difficulties, gives the mind something to do. And so we're so habituated to the drama of wrestling with this problem or that challenge or this difficulty that we can feel uneasy or even anxious when there seems to be nothing more to do. So I remember one time being on retreat and having some kind of issue and lying awake at night and just uh, going over and over and over it. And I, it felt like I was blowing up this balloon. And I was like, oh, and then this happened, and oh, it's like that, and, and huff and huff and huff and huff. And this balloon was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then at some point I recognized what was happening. And it was like the <coughs> balloon just metaphorically popped. And there was a wave of relief was that hindrance released. But then a nanosecond later, it was like, wow, where's my balloon? (laughs) And it's like, we call that nostalgia for samsara. (laughs) Samsara being that entanglement in the hindrances, the afflictive energies. So you might notice that at times, that something in us gets fed by that wrestling with the hindrances. And as I said the other night, that Tibetan phrase about meditation getting used to it so we want to get used to when the hindrances are absent and to learn to appreciate the ease 
the spaciousness, the calm, the peace, the tranquility, the equanimity, the kindness and compassion and joy that the absence of the hindrances make possible. So I hope that this brief overview of the hindrances gives you some sense of possibility about where all of this practice is leading. And I'd like to close with just a, a part of a passage from the suttas that's attributed to the Buddha. And as you listen, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking directly to you, because in a way he is. So see if you can take in these words. He says, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I wouldn't say to you, Abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, Abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then he continues with the same phrases, and this time focusing on the development of what is skillful. Finishing with, because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So that's what we're doing here, developing what is skillful because it's conducive to benefit and to pleasure. So thank you for your attention. Let's just... Sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.